Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Together in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 35. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to, 70, up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but, to ev- up, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, the one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we ask that you will allow by your spirit our hearts to receive it. We ask, Father, that it may not be mere words, but that it may come with power and conviction and with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in the midst of a chapter that is very clearly organized, whether it's organized thematically by Matthew or chronologically by the events in which, <laughs> which are recorded here, the way they took place, we don't know. I tend to think it's probably chronological and that there was just a series of things in the ministry of Jesus in his life that, that called for dealing with this, this topic, but it's possible to see it as being thematic that Matthew brought together over <laughs> some things that took place over the course of some time because they all deal with the same basic issue, which is, in a sense, the nastiness of life, the the crud 
that comes into our lives living in this world. And, and that, that nastiness, that crud, is not the rain that we had on Friday, and it's not the, the global warming, as terrified as people may be of that today, but the real nastiness of life comes through other people. And the real crud of life is, is found in our dealing with our fellow human beings. And if there's something that has driven you to despair, it's probably not been a financial need, but it's been a family need or a break in a relationship or a wrong that was done you. Those are the subjects of this chapter. Jesus says very clearly at the outset that there are going to be offenses. Certainly stumbling blocks or offenses, things that cause us to be hurt will come, Jesus says. They're going to come. They will be there in your life and mine. The question is, how do we deal with them? The chapter began with Jesus' warning that those who cause his little ones to stumble are going to end up wishing they had never been born. It would be better for them to have heavy millstones hung around their necks and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And he warns his disciples that in their pride, they had better make certain that they don't end up causing stumbling blocks to others. Certainly, it is the truth that nothing has harmed your life more, nor have you harmed other lives more than pride, than by the the sins that flow from pride. And if we could remove the sin, the stain of pride from our lives, there would be a peace and a happiness in our relationships with people that would be almost indescribable. Pride is what motivates so much that is, in fact, if we're with Augustine, pride is the sin of sins and everything flows from it. But certainly within our relationships, pride is deadly. So Jesus is warning us not to allow our pride to get in the way of of ourselves and of others. That it would be better for us, rather than causing others to stumble, to go into eternity lacking an eye or a hand so that we don't stumble by our pride and bring others down with us by our sins. And he speaks of his father's desire that none of the little ones perish. He says the father is always out there seeking the straying ones, his, his little ones. And he continues on in our passage where we began reading this morning by talking about what we are to do if our brothers sin against us. Now this is a passage where we have to follow the rule of scripture, the rule of Christ's life. I was reading this morning and John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we be looking for another? Jesus just quotes scripture. He says, well, tell him the the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the captives are being released. And he says, tell him that the Bible says this and these things are taking place and therefore he should be able to draw his own conclusions about whether I'm the one or not. And of course, John does. John is heartened by it and goes on. Um, 
This is the pattern of Jesus at point after point. He, whether it's a discussion or the framing of, uh, of a response to, to detractors or um, explanation to questions of his disciples, he gives them scripture. He speaks of John the Baptist being the Elijah who was foretold in Malachi. He quotes Malachi to say, John the Baptist was the was the Elijah that preceded. He's constantly referring back to Scripture, often saying that the words of Scripture must be fulfilled to explain what he's doing. And, and Jesus is, is constantly in Scripture, though he is the Word himself, to such a degree that he uses the Word to, to define the Word itself. There's a classic example of this with the Sadducees who deny the resurrection. They were making biblical arguments against the resurrection. They think that based on the Old Testament, they have an argument to make. And so they come to Jesus with this story about this woman who's been the, the wife consecutively of seven brothers and asking in the resurrection, whose wife, kind of mocking the idea of the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be in the resurrection if there's a resurrection? Jesus says, you err. You, you make a mistake because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he, he speaks about heaven and says, not given in marriage, but then he says about the resurrection. Do you not know that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God says it at the burning bush to Moses. God says that to Moses, explaining who he is. He says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had died hundreds and hundreds of years before, was proof, Jesus said, of the resurrection. When we come to a passage like this, we need to be aware that Scripture defines our understanding of Scripture. That we cannot take one verse and say, I claim this verse to the exclusion of all other passages in Scripture. God gave us a book that's filled with teaching so that we'll understand the, the great variety and the, the depth of the wisdom of God so that we'll have some, it's not a checklist. It's not a, a thing that we take like a pilot before a flight and say, puck, 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 okay, we're ready. You can't do that. It requires wisdom and it requires more than wisdom, the work of the Holy Spirit for scripture to be profitable to us. And that's especially the case in passages like this one, which are the cause of many mistakes and much bad living and even sinful living as Christians because Christians don't listen to scripture but impose their views on it and claim that they, this passage or another passage supports their view. Um, there are three themes in this portion of the chapter, these 20 verses that I want to speak about that I think predominate judgment authority and mercy and these themes are not just found in these verses they resonate throughout the entire chapter from the very beginning when the disciples are arguing about which of them will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven these themes begin to emerge Jesus is dealing with these themes by stating the need to be converted to become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven He's, he's speaking of, of his authority. He's speaking of the triumph of mercy. He's speaking of his justice. 
all these things. And so we have in this chapter, in these portions of Scripture that we're looking at, this teaching of Jesus, certain instructions for you and me when we find ourselves confronting the crud of this life. How should we live as children of the heavenly king when we're sinned against? That's the question that's addressed in these final verses of chapter 18. And they build on the foregoing discussions, but they teach us further. And so we have to check our attitudes when we're sinned against in the midst of the difficulties, the terrible things of this life that we endure. We look at these things and our attitudes in light of these three themes, justice, authority, and mercy. Now, it would be easy to say that the attitude of the Christian in the midst of suffering should always be one of self-effacing forgiveness, taking no account of wrongs, passing over offenses in love. There are some who suggest that this must always be our approach and that the Christian can do nothing else because it is the character of our Heavenly Father to have mercy triumph over judgment. Therefore, because our Father has said that mercy triumphs over judgment, mercy must triumph in our own lives over recognizing and dealing with offenses in our lives that come into our lives as his children. In a broader way, the pacifist movement reflects this idea. The movement that says, I will never fight, I will never go into the army, I will never be a police officer, I will never vote, I will never do these things because I might harm someone else. And I am called to love, and my love will be expressed by my not fighting. And one of the expressions of my love, but it's a notable one with those who claim this stance, that I will never ever do these things. The argument is made that it's the nature of God that tells us to do this. James does say, James the brother of Christ in his, in his epistle does say that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so it is true that mercy triumphs over judgment. But it would be very wrong because of that verse to say that because mercy triumphs over judgment, there is no such thing as judgment. Judgment exists. Mercy is mercy because of the reality of God's judgment. If there were no judgment, there would be no mercy. That's obvious, right? Without judgment, there's no need for mercy. There's no call for mercy. Mercy can't exist. So mercy may triumph over judgment, but the triumph of mercy over judgment does not mean there is no judgment. The reality of judgment in the, in the loving nature of God brought Jesus to earth. Jesus took our judgment if we trust him, if we repent of our sins and look to him in faith. He took our judgment on himself. Mercy triumphed over judgment, but judgment existed and judgment had its price paid in Jesus on the cross. So mercy triumphed, but judgment took place. Are we understanding this? The love of God does not supersede, nor does it nullify his justice any more than it does his holiness. God is holy, and he loves. 
God is just and he loves. And the love of God for particular little ones, particular sheep in this world, those who belong to his flock, demands justice. God is very clear that there is a demand for justice when those who belong to him are are sinned against, when they're violated in some way, when they are abused. The martyred saints in heaven, the book of Revelation tells us, call out to God, how long, O Lord, how long? They're crying out, how long before you bring justice? How long before you bring an end to the suffering and judge those who have been killing your little sheep? And that cry is absolutely in accord with the justice of God and with his love and with their being his children. And he assures them that it is not long that he will judge on their behalf. His love for them demands it. He loves them. And because he loves them, he will judge for them. We've just heard last week Jesus say that because the Father loves his little ones, he will repay their suffering. The, uh, the offenses that are placed in their paths by wicked people. God hates iniquity. God hates the proud. God loves the righteous. God loves the humble. This is his character, and every bit of it requires judgment. God makes judgments. We have in verses prior to our passage a statement of God's love, and it is reflected in the justice by which he judges those who harm those who belong to him. Now this justice of God, the Bible tells us, must find a reflection in the life of the church. It must because it's part of the character of God, the character of his son to exercise judgment, and because we're called to follow him in this. The justice of God is a communicable attribute of God like his holiness. We may not have it to the extent he has it, and we never will, but we are to seek it, and we are to grow in it. It is not like his omniscience or his omnipresence, those characteristics or attributes of God that we can't share as fallen human beings or as finite human beings. His justice is something that we can grow in and that we must grow in. It should come as no surprise to those who are members of the bride of Christ, the church, those who claim that Jesus is going to return as Savior and usher in judgment, that we would be called to preach judgment and to act as judges in this life. Judgment will find expression in the life of God's people, not only in our preaching, but in the way we lead our lives together. It's not just my saying things, it's our acting on these things that are found in Scripture that will reflect the judgments of God. Now, there are certain things we need to remember. The Bible says, look, you're not to judge those outside the church. They don't belong to God. But within the church, in your life together, we are to judge. We need to remember that. Paul writes, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. So-called, says he's a brother, if he is an immoral person, sexually immoral, or covetous. 
You're supposed to recognize that this person is greedy, covetous. That requires a judgment. When was the last time you judged someone as covetous? Do you even think in these categories about other people? Do you recognize? You understand that if you're going to grow in justice, you must understand these things. If you don't understand it in others, you're not going to understand it in yourself, are you? We are to not associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one as these. For what, I've ha- what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges, but remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so the the scriptures are clear. God's people are called to be judges, and our passage demands judgment. Our passage is concerned with a particular reason for judgment, a particular occasion for judgment, and how we deal with it. It's not looking at someone over there and saying, covetous, I'm I'm not going to run with him because he's greedy or he's sexually immoral, which is outside you. What our passage deals with is when the sin of someone else comes into your life. And remember, it's not the sins of the world, it's the sins of brothers. That's what Jesus says, if your brother sins. It's not those outside. The Bible says you don't deal with that, God will deal with that. What you're called to deal with as a judge is the sins that take place among those who claim to be your brothers. Now, as we look at this passage, it is a sin of a brother against us. Now, if you're reading the NASB, the New American Standard Bible this morning, you see that it has removed the from us from verse 15 when, uh, when Jesus is speaking. If your brother sins against you, um, doesn't say against you, it has it in a footnote, right? Later manuscripts add against you. Uh, and so they've helpfully removed it so that we don't have to deal with this becomes a universal duty of confrontation against every possible sin a brother might commit. And of course, when you make the, the command so overarching and universal, it's no requirement at all. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. <laughs> Can you imagine what life would have been like as a disciple of Jesus if he had gone to the disciples every time they sinned and showed them their fault? Can you imagine what kind of a church we'd have if we actually believed that this was not against us, but just in general? Let me say, the verses that precede our passage are about those who harm other people. When we as leaders and people in the church see evil taking place against others in the church, it is our duty to confront it. That is not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about when someone hurts you, and it's private. If you doubt that I'm reading this accurately, if you, if you doubt that against you should be there, which it's not in our Bibles, but it should be, just go to the Luke passage on the same thing, and it becomes absolutely clear from the conversation that Jesus is saying when he sins against you, all right? Trust me on this. This is when your brother sins against you. This is when you are struggling with something that has been done to you. 
In fact, it's obvious even if you leave it out from here because Peter naturally asks in response to the teaching of Jesus, look, Jesus, how many times should I forgive when my brother sins against me? And so he uses those words right there. This is the context of this teaching, personal offense, personal sin. It's not a template for public sin. The Bible says that when there is a public sin, especially among leaders in the church, there must be a public response. Deal with it publicly. Nor is this a formula for dealing with false teaching. Jesus did not spend his life going up to each Pharisee who taught falsehood, each scribe who taught things that were against the word, every Sadducee, and say, pardon me, I'd like a moment to discuss with you your views because they're wrong and I want to correct you privately. No, Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. He says it publicly and he doesn't try and go up. When someone is teaching something false, they are not violating, doing, putting themselves in this category. They're not violating you. They're violating the whole word of God. And they must be dealt with publicly. It's not against you. It's against God. And when there is a public sin that's known in the body, Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, you've got that guy who's got his father's wife there in Corinth. You know, you really need to call him in and have a talk with him and see if he'll repent. And if he doesn't repent, then let's go with a couple people and finally take. He says, look, I've already cast him out. You cast him out. The next time you're together, cast him out. This is not a passage about that kind of church discipline. It's not. This is one you've been sinned against and you're struggling. Satan uses false interpretations of passages like this one, this one in particular. And he doesn't use it to make us little judgment machines who run around judging. Sometimes kids turn that way, right? You raise a kid, you tell them right from wrong. They say to, they say to the neighbor kid when she comes over to swim in your, your pool in your backyard, that's a bad swimsuit. <laughs> and you say, oh, shut up. <laughs> Look, I didn't raise you to correct the world. And we've had kids in our church, and my own probably have been among them at times, who, are, who feel that their job is to correct everyone. But in reality, what happens when we come to this passage is that when we make it to be every sin that we need to c- confront, we become non-confronters at all. Because if you make it a universal duty that has to be done all the time, you just you don't even try. That's not this. This is when you're hurt. This is when a person who claims to be a brother is, in fact, sinning grievously against God. And it's an offense that can't be overlooked in love because even if you were to overlook it, the harm is real in the life of the offender. And so this is done out of love Not out of anger, not out of a personal sense of having been wronged. It's done because it has to be done for the sake of the so-called brother. This is not a passage that violates 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind. 
And it is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Here, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. How do you reconcile these two? By understanding that your love requires you go. There will be instances when love demands that you go. Very often, love will overlook wrongs done. It will do it in hope. Love will bear harm in endurance. Love will not take into account the wrong. So, we use this method when the harm of the sin is so great that it can't be overlooked in love. Now, I've said that this is the case when it's the sinner whose harm is is in view. And that's true. There are occasions as well, however, when the harm of the sin that you're aware of and others aren't is so great to the little sheep of God's that it must be dealt with. One place where this happens so very often is in marriages. Where there is a husband, and it can be a wife in her own way, but I'll speak initially at least of a husband, who has such a temper and so angry and hits. And Now, let me just add right at this point a statement that you need to accept. God has established civil authority in law. If a husband beats his wife, it is a violation of the law and it should be turned to the police. If a husband commits incest, we don't go first one person, then a second, then a third. We take the malefactor to the police. They deal with it. We can deal with the spiritual ramifications once the first demand of justice is met, which is to turn them over to the civil authority. We do not take and and spiritualize offenses which are violations of civil law. It's an evil when we say, oh, we'll deal with this when there are laws in the word of God and in our constitution and in our codes of government that that demand we not behave a certain way. Sometimes laws are wrong, but rarely. So what kind of thing? Well, a husband who clearly sins, sins in the home, but not in a way that others know, and not in a way that will lead the civil authority to get involved. There will be no arrest for it, but it's going on, and it's killing your home. This is the perfect occasion. Your children, the little sheep of gods, are being ruined. Wives, it points. It's your responsibility to follow this. And let me say to you, women who have wives come to you and complain about their husband and you you have to be discerning and exercise judgment at times is this is this wife complaining or out of bitterness or is she just seeking your support and prayer to go through a trial more often than not I think you'll find that if she keeps coming to you about this it's out of bitterness not out of a desire for support and you need to tell her follow this command 
If things are that bad and your husband is behaving that way, deal with it. I think husbands as well. I've, I've known many occasions where a husband won't deal with his wife, her anger, her bitterness, her rebellion, because he fears he'll lose his marriage. And so he won't talk to anyone and, and the children are ruined. The children are killed by this. It's not to your glory to overlook a fence that's killing the children in your home. It is disturbing to realize as a pastor of a church and as elders in this church how ready people are to put up with destructive sin in homes rather than endure the embarrassment of taking it to the church. They put up with their husband's porn rather than bring it to others. They put up with the things their kids have done to each other rather than bring it. They put up with their wives' rebellion and anger and bitterness rather than deal with it. Rather than go first themselves, they won't even do that. Rather than go with another, rather than take it to the church. They don't believe the Bible. They don't think this works. But it's about a brother. It's about a family. It's about someone we love, the family of God, which is deeper and richer even than our own blood families. We're not to do this in our blood families when we're doing it in the family of God. All right. A third time when we might use this provision of Christ for the sake of the other person, for the sake of the children. Third time when we would use it would be when the sin of someone else is so destructive and ongoing that we're unable to deal with it without sinning ourselves. It's an escape valve. But remember that this escape valve begins with us going individually to the person who is sinning against us. That step can't be ignored, and it often is. So we go to others, and we complain to others rather than speaking to the person. It's just wrong. It's not the word of God. Now, if we go and the person doesn't listen, Jesus says, then there's a next step. If it doesn't yield fruit when you go individually, then you are to take two or three others as witnesses. You notice that when he says that? Two or more of you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Those people who come with you to confront your wife for her rebellion, all right, or come with you to confront your husband. But it could be in any situation within the life of the church where we do this. I'm just speaking about families because, because I've gotten on that track, but it's anywhere. Those people are to go with you. But what do they go as? Are they megaphones shouting your message? No, they are called to go with you as witnesses. A witness, by definition, must be someone who is not involved, who does not have an ax to grind in the situation. They come with you as witnesses, not as support for you so that you can beat up on the person, but they come to stand and to give testimony at some point of what happened. This is their role. They don't come to support you so that you can really say what you want to say. They come to witness what's taking place. And it may be that you're asked to go as a witness with someone to another person and you end up saying, you know what? That proverb came true. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him and you're going to say, you know what? You told me this, this, and this. But I found when you talked to the person that it was that, that, and that. And it's not as clear. And I'm a witness and I can't say that you're innocent and they're guilty. You're a witness. 
You need a witness so that there's truth in this confrontation. And so that if it goes further, there are people who say they did their job. The person admitted to doing this. It's clear. So that when it comes to the church, if it needs to come to the church, there are people who will tell the truth and be relied upon rather than those who are involved and engaged in the conflict. Many homes, many marriages would be spared the tragic work that Satan is doing in them someone in that family would have the faith to employ this means God has given for dealing with sin between brothers. This is not a method for dealing with strangers. It's not a method for false teachers. It's not a method for the sins of people out there that are public. This is when you have been hurt when there's harm in your life, when you're a victim. The point of this process, Jesus says, go first by yourself. The point is not to get your pound of flesh, but to win your brother so that you're back in fellowship, so that you're close again. You understand that? It's designed initially being private so that the person is led to repent. It's not vindictive. It's hoping for the restoration. And because this is the case, it may be possible to move through one or two of the steps and not complete it. You might say, you know what, I've gone in person, I've gone with others. I don't want to move ahead now. I'm going to see if I can cover this in love. At times, that will be the response. At times, you may go yourself and not immediately go with two other people. But if the sin remains and the threat is real, this is the pattern. Second obvious component here of the teaching of Christ in this matter is the authority that Jesus has given his bride for dealing with these kinds of things. In verse 18, he repeats something he said previously to Peter alone after Peter had confessed him as the Christ, the son of the living God. He says something very similar to what he said then here. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's precisely what he said to Peter, making it very clear that it's not a promise to the Pope. It's a promise to all God's people. Jesus goes on and says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is tied to this passage. This is speaking about offenses. It's a, a statement about dealing with sins and offenses. If you bind it, if you loose it. If you say no, it's not resolved. Or if you say yes, it's, it's resolved. That's the context. If you remember, Jesus told Satan when he was tempted that it would be wrong to turn a rock into food, saying to Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. So he refused to do a miracle that would benefit himself, saying that would be against God. Interestingly, 
later in his ministry, Jesus does exactly that miracle. He turns the loaves and the fishes into many, many more. He makes food out of food. He could have done it from a rock. God is capable. So he does for other people what he would not do for himself because of the word of God. You must understand that what you seek from God must be in accord with the written will of God if you're going to expect God to answer it. You can't go to God and test him. This promise that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, they may ask it shall be done for them, is not a promise that if you say, well, look, you know, I don't like our parking lot. I see gravel in it. Jordan lets you and me agree and ask God to, to have it suddenly transformed into a brand new parking lot. It's not that kind of a claim. God is not put to the test. God does not suddenly say, okay, I don't want you to suffer. I want you to have all the money you want and all the things you want and everything good and nice and happy in your life because you've agreed. You two have prayed, and so obviously it has to happen, right? It's not the point of this passage. It's not a guarantee that if you ask for something with a brother or a sister that your, your prayer will be answered the way you want it to. God is not bound by your asking him together with others. Sometimes what you ask is against his will, his word, or against faith in your own life. And you should not think that Jesus will require his father to do something for you that the father would not do for him. That the father said would be wrong, turn the rock into bread. But notice here the authority that Jesus says we have when two or three are gathered. It's the same two or three that he referred to previously as witnesses. Same exact language. Two or three witnesses. Two or three. When two or three of you are dealing with this kind of a situation and you go to God in prayer and you ask him to resolve it, God will listen. That's the promise. Follow this passage and God will work. It is clear that prayer, when we're together, brings Jesus into our midst. And therefore, when we pray with each other, there is a strength in that prayer. In part because we're checking each other. You know, I may ask for things in private that I'd never ask when I'm with you. Because I'd be embarrassed to. Because I'd know that they sound greedy. And that's part of this check. But there's also the reality that God has formed us as a family. And that when the family comes together to the Father and asks for something, he listens. God listens. And let me just say that when Cheryl and I, I've told the story before, some years ago decided to pray because of my sin in our marriage and ask God to make me a different man and her though I was primarily at fault on that occasion. When we decided that we would pray, we've never seen greater power from God. When two or three are gathered in his name and ask him something, he does things. Prayer has tremendous authority 
God listens when we pray, when we followed his word. Finally, mercy. Peter asks, based on the, pre- the teaching by Jesus that we've been talking about, how we should deal with the one who sins against us. Should I forgive him up to seven times? Not 70 times, but 70 times seven times. Not seven times, but 77 times. Mercy is at the heart of the love of God. Mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Be merciful. Forgive. Stop holding on to offenses. Do not refuse others the forgiveness God has given you. We owe a great debt to God. People will do many things to offend us. People will do things that bother us. Jesus says, if you don't forgive them, you don't love. And if you don't love, you're not a child of the Heavenly Father and you're not going to be forgiven by Him. Determine right now, there's someone in your life, maybe many, that you're bitter at, that you're angry at, that you haven't followed this passage about because you don't want to, that you'd rather be angry with than have it resolved That is a threat. Not a threat to that person, but to you. To your future. Deal with it. Have done with it. Pass it over in love. Say it's over. Forget it. Or deal with it in accord with this passage. But don't let another day go by with that bitterness. It will kill you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will bless it in our lives and that we will be a church where there is no bitterness, full forgiveness, and the power of God in our midst as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.